before we get started, I just got a new toy on Friday. I got one of those uh, Motorola satellite messengers. Oh. Cheap insurance if you're lost somewhere in the boonies to text someone. It also has a big fat orange SOS button and all that type of stuff. You realize, well, and you could also uh, not have to use that by not getting lost in the boonies. See, some of us choose to stay within the bounds of the city. JM, that defeats the purpose, you know? The purpose is to get lost in the boonies. <laughs> the purpose is to get lost? <laughs> the purpose is to get found, but to get found, you have to be lost first. Yeah. There's beauty in being found. I like it. Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, JM, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Roland. I got to tell you, uh, I'll be honest, I'll, I'm a little bit sore today. Now, I got a story for you. Why am I a little sore today? Body's a little achy. Because yesterday, for the first time in my life, I ran a 5K. Ooh. I know, it sounds crazy. I, I, I've been sitting behind this desk for years and years and years. Why did I run a 5K? Well, it was Terry Fox Run, which is a marathon in Canada to support cancer research. And... Uh, I spent the last six months preparing myself to run five kilometers, and I gotta say, it was easier than I thought it would be. I assumed I would be literally dead today. Instead, I am just a little achy. Um, but I guess six months of training, and I think your wonderful wife giving me great tips on how to learn how to actually run, was a mm -hmm. big part of it. So I'm I'm celebrating and aching a little bit. <laughs> how are you doing, my friend? You, you ran it in 18 minutes, JM? Was that the, uh, was that the objective? No, more, no, not in 18 minutes, but more on the side of like 35, more like 80. Minutes, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I'm a beginner runner. What do I know? I'm just like putting one foot in front of the other and hoping not to fall over as I run. No, it, it was okay. I could have, I could have gone faster and I probably could have gone further, but for a first foray, it was just right no that's good i i honest, honestly think it's 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 really good jm i was just wondering because i, I read an article of of one of our dear competition a couple of weeks ago uh, that said oh yeah if you do this thing um five times in this case it was process mining but i, I will happily apply this to <laughs> 5k runs uh, if you do this thing more than five times you need to establish a center of excellence so now we have to talk about JM, how we establish your running center of excellence and, and, and see where it goes. How about that idea? Ooh, I, 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 th I, that's a good idea. You know, I, honestly, I could have used uh, some folks around me all the time who were easy to contact, who knew what they were doing, who established standards, who were part of a community, who were creating good con. Wait a second. Isn't, isn't that the topic of today's episode? And I got to tell you, what? we have a really special guest on. Yeah, do, do we? Do we? So we like to introduce who, our guest. Yeah, show? we do. <laughs> <laughs> we have our good friend T. Now, if you haven't seen T with T, you are missing out. But we have 
him on this show today to talk a little bit more about one of the things he loves and something that we would love to share with our audience all about centers of excellence. So welcome to the show, T. Thanks for having me, guys. Hi, Jim. Hi, Roland. Hey, T, how you doing? And and can you talk a little bit about your background? Because at least I thought it was a good idea to invite you to this show. And I think you have some value-add contributions to this topic. <laughs> Very well. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so my name is uh, T. Uh, probably by now, by my accent, you can tell I'm actually a German. My name is Vietnamese. So I was born and raised in Germany, studied actually in the States and... Um, yeah, I, I started business administration and right after university, I started to work for Siemens AG. And then from there on, I worked for the ni next 19 years in six different countries in different functions, really um, within uh, IT. Did uh, quite a few of ERP implementations, um, worked my way up the ranks to be a, being a CIO of a Siemens entity in uh, Vietnam. Switched to the dark side, went to finance, uh, <laughs> did also quite a lot of different uh, things there. And yeah, my, my career then brought me back to uh, Vietnam in 2020, where I joined healthcare and uh, was in the service business. But I guess today you also are going to be interested about my years as a head of operation excellence, where I was uh, implementing and leading different kinds of centers of excellences in the business process management, process mining realm. Of course, and then, then I, when you mentioned you went to the dark side of finance, I, I heard you're, you're working for an employer. I, I think the uh, abbreviation is Satan's Accounting Package. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, uh, there's a lot, a lot of different abbreviations uh, in multiple languages uh, for that. But uh, the way I see it is, you know, like all this humor is uh, also a part of envy. So that's absolutely great, you know, and I have no problems with that. Oh, yeah, no, make no bones about it. You know, if, <laughs> if our company had the revenue that SAP had, I'm pretty sure we all would be super happy. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is, this is an exciting. So you're, we're having you on to talk about one part of what you do. But I can only assume that that all these experiences come together to form your perspective. I mean, you know, you 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 make the uh, recurring YouTube and and video segments the the tea with tea is with tea with tea, and uh, how is that how is that content creation help to synthesize a lot of your perspectives into a message you take forward? Like what 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 does it combine to create those videos for you? That's a that's a very good uh, question. To be honest, I haven't really thought so deeply about it uh, at at, uh, at all the times. Uh, I do love uh, creating and sharing uh, content, and what really drives me mm -hmm. is that people could draw upon that experience without having to take all the let's call it bad experience. And so I want uh, the listener and the audience to have, uh, let's say, learning nuggets uh, without having to go through all of these things. And I try to always wrap it mm -hmm. in a, let's say, humorous way, witty way. And, um, you know, I do love actually uh, the one saying of uh, Uncle Iroh, you know, like, uh, good times make uh, great uh, memories and bad times make great lessons, right? So <laughs> I think, uh, I hope ah. uh, that, you know, with all of the different kind of exposure I had in this, you know, corporate uh, world, uh, that I could uh, contribute to some of the listeners and you know, I and don't take me uh, literally, you know, 
uh, have some fun with it, uh, and there's usually a little bit of a deeper hidden message as well. It is, and I, I really like the format. You know, you got those two, three, four-minute nuggets. Um, even though I still want to see you dance on a pole, but that's a different story. Um, I really love it. You know, it's like when I open my LinkedIn feed or, or I see you popping up in my YouTube subscriptions, you know, and I see that and I said, oh, that's nice. I take a, I take two, three minutes back and, and just watch you. And I found it very interesting. But before we get to the to the real topic of the show today, which is talking about centers of excellence, in case you haven't noticed it, uh, let's just uh, give people a little bit of a background for you about you as a person. Uh, so what are your hobbies? What are your interests? What are your bucket list items? Well, I mean, it's a, just a podcast. Uh, it's not going to be a couple hours, I guess. But uh, <laughs> some of my hobbies, uh, to, to generalize it, is I just really love to learn. And I really do not mind to be the stupidest person in the room, uh, as long as I don't leave it uh, the same person. And so, yeah, I'm... I, I do love uh, music. Uh, I I played uh, violin and piano for many many years. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd and a geek. Yeah, so whether it's uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord of Rings, Game of Thrones, you know, all of these great things. Um, yeah, I play tennis and uh, I enjoy spending the time with my family. You know, I'm married, have a 13 year old daughter, and yeah, so this is a little bit more about tea. Hey, well, it's good to get to know you. I think our audience really likes to know the human beings behind some of the decision-making or sort of guidance and strategy for the market. I mean, here's the truth. Everyone who ever made any company or who helps shape and, and direct any company is just a person. And behind them are their experiences, their biases, their, their loves, their hates, the, the individual that they are that shapes those decisions. And so helping to understand the best practices you bring from the perspective of who you are gives us a full picture. And I think that's great. But today we're going to be talking a lot about those best practices because I, I got to tell you, I talk to clients all the time when we talk about process and, and enterprise architecture who don't see the need necessarily to establish centers of excellence as part of their initial sort of deployment of that practice, of that practice of, of process. They say, you know, we're just going to equip our experts and we're going to send them out into the world. I think I've heard those words, words a lot. We're gonna send them out into the world and we're going to have them create amazing things for people all over the business. And my concern that comes back to them is, is who's managing this? Like, you know, you've created this fantastic, this special team that is going to be creating stuff, or you've created a lot of knowledge, you've tried to install it, but nothing's really being retained. You're developing individuals, but you're not developing the organization. You're not developing a structure around it, and you're not encapsulating that in some sort of repeatability. This feels like a loss from the very get-go. And so centers of excellence have been always a, a big part of how I see deployments going. And I, I'd love to hear more about where you see Center of Excellence as, as, a, as a, a purpose. So the, the, our first part is always the why. Why do you think Center of Excellence are so important for organizations to establish? And what role do you see them playing in an organization's development of intellectual capital? If you ask 10 people what's the meaning of a Center of Excellence to them on a personal level, I think at least you will get probably 15 different answers. 
Yeah. So if I if I talked about the person working in accounting and controlling, even there it is also very different depending on the environment. It depends on the industry. It depends on whether this is let's say internal accounting and reporting or is it you know customer facing. You know, there's there's different layers and levels of that. So with the topic of center of excellence, it even becomes more diverse. So irregardless of what is the specific meaning to, let's say, any one person or organization, which is, of course, also formed by the culture of organization itself, uh, definitely uh, there must be a purpose. But here already I even branched out into two different things. And don't worry, I, we can always come back to these things. But even when we talk about the purpose, the question is, wow, T, you're great. You got a purpose. Yeah, but what if the purpose is a bad one? <laughs> That's also possible. So right. do we value the, the purpose itself or the outcomes? So maybe I have a bad purpose, you know? I, I just want to, to see the world burn, bad purpose. But maybe I create cool things. Yeah, it's possible. So let's, let's make it a little bit more concrete where I share a little bit about uh, the context on where I've uh, created a center of excellence. But I think it's also important to understand that at that time, I did not have that knowledge to tell the story I do have now. So we also have to put ourselves into the shoes of T when he started the journey of creating different center of excellence. I think this is really, really important when you talk about decision making. Because now, in hindsight, sure. you're always smarter, right? So, in uh, 2016, uh, I, wa I, I was nominated to be, be basically Mr. Order to Cash for Siemens Digital Industries. So, we're talking about a $16 billion business, right? And so, yeah, we are in 30 league countries, 90 countries all over the world. And it's pretty simple to talk about different activities. But you can imagine in a large corporation like Siemens, you know, some countries that have their own warehouses and manufacturing sites, somewhere purely export, somewhere uh, doing distribution business via partners. And, and so the complexity of that simple word order to cash is already very manifold. So the purpose in the beginning was to harmonize and standardize processes because we wanted to become more agile on the market. But before we could even actually address that topic, we needed transparency. So then that became the new person. Like, uh, you know, when you play video games like Zelda, you know, that's a side quest. Oh, suddenly the main quest <laughs> changed. Now you the side quest. <laughs> suddenly it's, it's a transparency. And then, of course, had to be fast, shouldn't cost much. And then next question is like, but who are those people? who actually should be the center of excellence. And, you know, everything at that time, you know, everything was agile. So you can imagine, right? What, is, what kind of pressure is it that you're thrown at so many demands? You're moving around, you know, you don't even know the needle of a compass. This has not even been adjusted. But the only thing which stuck was center of excellence. And that term, I tell you, was burned already <laughs> before we even started. Why? Because people would always think center of excellence is exactly the same as the worst center of excellence they actually ever knew. 
So as a starter, we took a bit of humor. We always said, we are the new center of excellence, but not that one. Ah, so you want to take away the, the negative association of the words yeah. and give yourselves a new chance to make a difference. I like it. Absolutely. And we always introduce uh, this joke. You know, there are three lies, right, in life. You know, number one, I love you. Number two, the check is in the mail. Number three, I'm from headquarters here to help. And we introduce the fourth lie about ourselves. It's a center of excellence. Three words, three lies. Should it be a center? Should it be of something or for something? And how do we know it's excellent? Who is it who actually says we are excellent? I mean, it's, it sounds a little bit arrogant, right? I'm the center of excellence. I'm here to help. Yeah, sounds, sounds very much like, you know, the other three lies. So we had another mantra. What we said is, yes, I was globally responsible. I was in the headquarters, but I did a reset on the team so with the exception of myself, who was, let's say, quotes and quotes, a headquarters guy, my team consisted of only people from the regions who actually had done the work. So from the regions, for the regions. Mm -hmm. No headquarter political stuff, really young ladies who have been posting orders all their lives, talking to customers. They don't know nothing about the, the political environment working in a centralized department. Yeah, so that is the first part. So yes, we would never say we are excellent, but we at least would be confident to know that we knew stuff. So we didn't talk about this, some electronic orders. We would really say EDI, status 51, status 53. We would go to that level. Which is very interesting because uh, you established a how do I say that, a process-oriented, even though that word is maybe a little bit wrong, a process-focused COE around this order-to-cash process. What I typically see is COEs more in a different setup, you know, as part of the, the governance structure. And, and when you think about the, the typical governance structure that uh, countries have, you know, you have the people making the rules, the people doing some stuff, and the people who... Uh, being the justices on top of it, if, if something goes aside. Um, I see a COE more uh, as a helping organization for the executive branch, right? And that typically, at least in my experience, is focused around a tool, you know? Oh, yeah, we need to, we brought this enterprise-wide tool in there to map our processes or to do process mining or whatever, right? And then you need a group that owns that tool, and then they put the little sticker on their door signs and say, oh, yeah, we're the COE. But that's obviously quite different from, from what you did because you were focused on business results. Uh, yes and no. Actually, you are absolutely right as well. But I think uh, here is the trick. It's not really a mutually exclusive binary either or discussion, but it's uh, as well and on top. So yes, we had really marvelous stickers, I tell you. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we had our tool. Uh, we are uh, we are also implementing, you know, one of these new technologies which came around. You know, process mining. Uh, Siemens at that time was really the largest process mining consumer, so to speak, you know, uh, globally speaking in terms of terabytes and, and users and all of that. So yes, we had that as well. But I think going back a little bit, and I was of course a little bit cryptic, but let me be a little bit more specific now, is 
there's a difference between focusing or communicating on A while at the same time you want to have B. So while I did have the governance authority to implement and push and roll out tools, I didn't do that. So the first speak as a global process owner, that word only existed in the headquarters in Germany. Once I set my foot into the regions, I never said that I'm a global process owner. What I said was, I'm not here to implement a new initiative for continuous process, business process improvement. You are doing it every day already. I'm not questioning that because I know nobody wants to have a bad process. My job is to make your life still better because I need to implement a new how. You are going to put in the new what. And if I need to then bring onto the table a new what and a how, then that's my job. Yeah, and I think that that is really the, the, the difference on how I approach a topic. And by the way, uh, uh, my team as well, because they came from there, they knew hell. And uh, just, just to share this story, you know why all of these stories around Hercules and Achilles and uh, all this Greek mythology, you know, you, you see somebody is always going to the underworld and, and, and fighting against a monster. You know, there's a lot, a lot of mythology about going to the underworld. The stories after thousands of years are not so interesting that they went to the underworld, that they went to hell. What makes them so interesting is that they survived. <laughs> so they came back yeah. to tell the story. <laughs> and I think that is really the important part is my ladies and myself. We have been out there. We have been in hell and we didn't want anyone else to deal with that. Whether it's master data, whether it's inco terms or payment terms, because we would go onto that level of empathy, because we were the stupid people back in the days to press the button ten thousand times because the process was bad, and we wanted to change that. And and I find it refreshing saying this because back in the day, I also led a COE at, at one point in time, and I thought my role would be not the poster child of that topic. You know, hey, we got this. But it was more like uh, being the servant for people. You know, I did the cleanup work with my team. I did the cleanup work in the background to provide the people on the front actually doing or, or providing them the stuff that they need to do their job. Right? In this case, it was selling and, and whatnot. But anyway, so it's, it's more a different attitude uh, that you see. And I think that that humble servant attitude is a, is a pretty good one. And it seems you... Um, obviously took that on too. But speaking of which, when, when we look at COEs and, and forms of COEs, there's obviously different ways to skim a cat. Uh, what have you seen as the, the typical ways how organizations set up those COEs? Is it the, the monolith um, that is the center of the universe and everything circles around it? Or is it a different form of organization that you've seen? I mean, arithmetically and statistically speaking, I do see that, especially in the beginning of initiatives, that there seems to be a little bit of a monolithic approach, you know, like a kind of a hub and spoke, everything goes into the center. And I think that's a really great approach because it's extremely effective. And I think that also should be a really great approach to take all the blame. I love to take all the blame because anybody knew I was just new to the job. So for me, it's absolutely okay to take all the blame because I knew it wasn't me, right? I wasn't there. But then mm -hmm. the next question was, 
am I now also allowed to take the responsibility and drive the change? You know, for example, you told me that process is bad. I ask you, what would be a better process? And as SRT, you know, we heard a thousand of these guys come over and they always promised something and that they didn't deliver. And I said, you know what, yeah, but I didn't come. It's the first time I come. So mm -hmm. bear with me. And they said something. But then if I do it, will they then implement it? Because the change is actually the hard part. For me to decide, let's go that way, that's actually the easiest part for the organizations out there to then follow that change, even if they actually requested it, that's actually the big effort. So in the beginning, yes, a central approach is the, a very effective way to do things. And what do we see then? Then we see that uh, you want to have the best of worlds in terms of effectiveness and efficiency, right? Uh, most bang for the buck. There are no synergies between, uh, let's say, uh, one continent to the others. So that's why you have maybe regional hubs, right? So yes, there's a central part uh, where certain standards uh, are rolled out, but at the same time, there's regional flavor to it, right? And then that's actually pretty cool. Yeah? So you have a little bit of, you lose a little bit of effectiveness, you know, like uh, my way or the highway, but at the same time, you have also, you know, the regional flavors and it's a little bit more efficient, right? Because you don't implement stuff you don't need. Yeah, that's the hope at least. But what I see is that if you can go to the next stage, and, and that is something in, in a positive way, I call something like a distributed, you know, like a network, like a mesh of excellence, you know, like in a mesh architecture, if one node falls away, the whole network does not fall. And this is basically what we really wanted to, uh, to do. And we also approached internally something like a carrier flag, a little bit like the Olympic Games. What do we mean by that? What do you mean by that is that we had one country taking the lead for one specific topic for the entire world. And it didn't have to be the big, big countries. It could have mm -hmm. been also one of the quotes unquote smaller countries. So this way we created also the trust because before we came in, it was always quotes unquote the big three, the big four countries running the show because statistically speaking, they are 80%, 90% of all the business volume anyhow. Yeah. And we really wanted to make it quotes unquote not fairer, but we wanted to give an impression of fairness. But that, that is typical. I've, I've seen that before. I worked on a project like 2015-ish when I was with that little accounting firm and, and we were thinking about revamping our internal audit uh, product. You know, and the idea was to grow the pond and then have a disproportionate share of it, right? Versus just stealing away something from the PWCs and Deloitte's and, and mm. whatever. And um, the funny thing is, based on the org structure, it was exactly the same thing. Oh, yeah, if, if Germany, the UK, and the US do, do it, it'll be good enough for us, right? What they didn't realize is that the US had about 3,500 internal auditors. The Netherlands mm. had about 30 so that the needs for the Netherlands were quite different than whatever we had in the U.S. You know, you didn't need the staffing and, and all that other stuff in there. You needed some, how do I plan my internal audits? How do I track it and all that stuff? That was the core. But there was a lot of, quote unquote, overload that was pushed to the smaller companies. So the question is more, well, how do you measure success of your COE? How do you measure success of an initiative like that that you bring in? So let me ask you that question, T. How do you measure success? <laughs> yes. Um, 
two answers. Uh, one, the meta, one, the specific. Yeah, the the, the meta answer is, uh, and by the way, I, I learned this from uh, Coach Bennett uh, of uh, Nike Run Club. Uh, I'm also I really do love uh, running as well. In order to be consistently and continuously successful, you need to be able to measure success in as many ways as possible. So if you hold it in one number, in one KPI, you're destined to fail. Why? Because if you do 10 great things, but not the one thing, then everyone is talking about failure. So success in as many ways as possible, meaning um, what was the automation rate before now? At the same time, how many less manual interventions do we have? Mm -hmm. At the same time, what about the cycle time? Next one is, did we implement that ABAP we wanted to implement? Yeah. So yes, some black and white topics, some quantifiable, but also co uh, uh, quality related issues. You know, like we, we did, yeah. NPS, how happy are you to go home earlier, <laughs> not having to <laughs> press the red button uh, 50,000 times a day, right? Yeah. So, so that is the meta answer. And in specific, we actually created a new KPI because we saw that in its simplicity, a lot of positive side effects were there, which we never had to mention. So the, it was called the digital fit rate. And the digital fit rate was basically just a KPI which measured the number of manual intervention arithmetically over the number of sales order items. So to speak, if you have 100 sales order items and you touch one through the entire uh, process change, then you get a mark of 1.0. So less is better. Yeah, less touches mm -hmm. is better. But the funny thing was, when we saw how the KPI improved, the countries themselves were talking about harmonization, standardization, and cleanup of master data. I didn't have to preach it. <laughs> I was very ready <laughs> to preach it. Hey, guys, um, <laughs> now let's talk about this uh, monster. I didn't need to. Yeah. Why? Because they believed in that KPI. They saw the benefits, and for the first time, it was so transparent that we even, which was also a new thing, all the change requests we had were always open to every country in the world and also their targets were also open to everyone. So we had open reporting, open targets and open change requests. And the mantra which oh. uh, I was actually also able to keep on was if two countries want something, it automatically by default is a global change request and will be done. It's only two countries not the majority, mm -hmm. not business cases, blah, blah, blah. No, if two countries want it, consider it done. And the reason was, once I did this two, three times, you can imagine that everyone was very careful in requesting things <laughs> because they knew they would be messing it up for a lot of other countries if they had these businesses. Yeah, or they worked in the background and, and try to find allies, you know, to say, hey, don't you think Absolutely. this is a good idea? Yes, yeah, that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, you know, I was in the dark side before. I knew how to do my tricks in terms of, you know, cost center consolidation, SLAs, transfer price issues. So I pulled all the effort into the headquarters and then pushed them back. So, so to speak, they got it for free because I pulled everything into the headquarters. Mm -hmm. yeah? And therefore, they didn't need to budget. They didn't need to do all the politic. If it's necessary to be done, if it supports our shared KPIs, we will do it. And suddenly that center of excellence became a community for everyone. 
and I think that is really kind of a key message I wanted to say. We just created a community and we helped other people, a lot of people we didn't even know who they are in different divisions of Siemens, yeah? whether it's mobility, whether it's energy. Yeah, I was in digital industry, I was in, in manufacturing, concrete, discrete manufacturing. Yeah, but also solution business, system business, we helped them as well. Why? Because we really believed in that uh, community. Yeah, and it sounds to me like there's there's both an organization component of it and a big communication component of it. You know, you, you spent time uh, investing in shaping the message, investing in your end consumers so that you could build a community that felt like they were close to the message rather than somebody who was being told at the end of the line, hey, this is what you that thou shalt do. And that ownership, sharing that ownership, that transparency, I've seen over and over again, companies fail to achieve that. And then regardless of what they try to create, they don't get the buy-in from all the people who need to staff it who need to listen to it, and ultimately who need to execute on the collective plans. I love it. And I think our audience will agree with us over our many episodes together. You've heard us talk about how communication is so important. It seems like, T, this was a cornerstone of how you approach some of what you did. But before we go on and talk a little more, we're going to leave you with a small break to think about these amazing lessons so far and think about your experiences. Have you been involved in a COE effort? Uh, what are your experiences with that? Have it been positive or negative? What has it contributed to you? Was it helpful or was your COE just another governance organization? We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our second section, The How. Welcome back. So this is an awesome, interesting conversation with T about centers of excellence. So I, I enjoyed a lot and I think JM and, and I hope T will see it the same way. But T, uh, let's go back to the topic. We spoke about well, what is a COE and I, I loved your three big lies analogy because I've seen that too. Uh, but what is the role that you see for COEs? You, you shared your personal experience on it, but mm. what is the more generic role of a COE that you see maybe elsewhere, you know, established by clients that you work with? Or so all the guys, were you not were the leader? Mm. I think the common theme is scale and speed. So because the assumption that we are talking about a specific set of expertise and skills is kind of a given. So when I look at clients, they really want to make sure that they have the confidence to drive things on a global level, on a cross-regional level, at scale and at speed. So basically it would be faster than without. 
but often that is also the beginning of the end of it's also part of the problem is that often when you look at top-down approaches we are thinking that quotes unquote the frontline worker doesn't want it better we talk a lot about reasons why things don't go that way because of resistance to change and i don't believe in that or i believe in it in a different way i love resistance to change because these people still care i hate when i see people who are indifferent and says yes sir yes boss whatever you want resistance to change means people who have the courage to speak up although i have the authority i love that well it's like press right there's no bad publicity because at least people are paying attention to this and that they're focused in on the message you're, you're sending out. You can shape opinion, but having no opinion, you've already lost. I love it. So, so then, so now, now we've got people's attention. You got a captive audience, let's say <laughs> people are giving us p feedback, negative or positive. Fine. How do we get started with assembling let's say the structure, the headcount, the mission or purpose you talked about before of a COE, how do I match that with my organizational needs, with the organizational realities of the people I have and with the goals that we're aligning to strategic directions? Absolutely, and it really depends on the situation, but you can still make it very transparent. Ask the executives who want to drive uh, for example, an initiative, is it an enabler? Is it an incubator? Is it the last line of defense? Do we have teeth in terms of governance or we don't? Are we just basically the pool, the buffer to listen to all of the noise, the signals from out there? And then you can work with that. And obviously it's not set in stone. And maybe just to do a little bit of a shameless plug of my own episode I did on COE a couple of months ago. What I've noticed is that the most successful COEs, whether in my own experience or with my clients, they actually never asked what is the best setup. They just started and then they adjusted as needed and they knew on how to maneuver the best way between top-down governance, expectations, and bottom-up realities. So yes, they were the middle ground where the magic happens. So this is something which uh, with one of these companies we did also a white paper was really the essence. The essence is in order to have a successful COE, you need to have the top-down context, resources, money, trust, and time. Don't talk to me about tool. Get out of here. You talk about tool, get out of the room. Thank you for the money, but you are not here to decide tools. Bottom up is content. Bottom up is which tool and how we're going to do it. And they always deliver in less time and less resources if you actually let them. And that's, by the way, the same thing. In the first year, we did not give any country targets. We asked the countries, what target would you give yourself? And I will not question it. And we, we did it. Why? 
because there were some countries who wanted it easy, and then they're out because they basically got shitstormed by themselves. The other countries looked at them and said, hey, everyone is transparent. Why are you free-floating? They created so much anxiety, they were basically socially canceled. But every country, that's the beauty of it, the punchline now, every country had own targets which were higher, more challenging than the ones I would have given, and they still overachieved them because they actually felt for the first time there is an actual trust. And the COE, my team, was there to support them achieving that. So it was really a win-win. And so that is basically how we were fueling from a quotes-unquote cost center point of view, uh, how to do that. But now here comes the next topic. How can you be excellent if you don't have a DevOps kind of mentality, if you don't know what's actually out in the front line? So all my team, I said very clearly, you have to move and develop. You can stay in this umbrella of a COE, but you cannot do the same topics more than three years. Yeah. And most of them actually have chosen to develop. And I brought in other colleagues from the regions who saw our project becoming then a established cost center, so to speak. And we had a natural rotation of 100%, which was good, because that's basically how we actually want it, if we are tr truly honest to ourselves. And that is basically what I sometimes call the gold hamster dilemma. I don't know if you ever had a gold hamster or for your own uh, uh, children. No. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a sad investment because they honestly just live two to three years. But two to three years is right. actually an emotional investment still. So would you get yeah. a gold hamster and then still after two, three years? Because that's a natural way, right? And I think this is the same thing about the COE. If you look at it as a cost center, you have to accept after two, three years, the party is over. You have to create a new party. Are you saying that COEs should intentionally aim to dissolve themselves within a certain time frame? Yes, in the way they're created, absolutely. But they can reinvent themselves and they can reshift their focus. So what is next then? So, so if the first one is, okay, to, to your example, you know, let's make this process better. We end up and we achieve the goals that we've set ourselves. You know, isn't it mission accomplished? What, what is the next level? And I'm thinking about the double S curve you know, uh, right. that you have in organizations. So, so how do you help COEs that are on top of their game, that have established their mission? How do you help them finding the next big thing? Or do you just say, oh, go, go play hamster and play dead and go away? No. But let's say, uh, let's stick to our digital fit rate. So semantically, we could actually think that everything is totally 100% automated and there's no touch. But we actually understood there is a, a certain threshold. Yeah, It happened, by the way, at around 0.3, meaning 70 go through. In 30 cases, there at least will be one touch. Yeah. Um, And we saw, yeah, there was a certain threshold. But we did not say we might, must make it 0.2. Some countries, by the way, did. But overall, we said, no, let's actually focus on other things. Now that we have this level of automation, let's have uh, a reduction of cycle times. Let's have a higher uh, reliability rates, uh, less non-conformance, things like that. Yeah? So there, there's other ventures you can do, but they need to be confirmed and communicated because otherwise you're holding to the old 
grails, so to speak. Yeah. So that's why the COE right. is actually defined by not the new people, but also by new targets and by new, let's call them business narratives. Yeah. And for us, it was process mining in the beginning. Then we went to RPA. <laughs> then we went to low code, no code. And we even mm-hmm. within low code, mm-hmm. no code, we ventured into two areas where is one, the citizen developer, and the other one is, let's say, the uh, rapid IT development. Yeah, IT. Yeah. 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 So we always had things. So here, here, here's my question then. If you're looking at um, an environment where you are constantly sort of swapping out what a COE is, and I'm not saying constantly in the sense that you're looking at this in, in a very short amount of time. I'm saying like it is just a an organizational cycle in, in the long the long tail of a of an organization. The question is, how do you ensure that the lessons learned from COE one stick when it dissolves and COE two comes up? I'll give you the example you brought up: the digital fit rate. Mm. If that KPI was being maintained, or at least pushed out, or communicated, or evangelized by a COE, and then that COE dissolves and you move on to the next thing. Now you're moving into RPA, you're moving into low code, no code. What is there? What have you established to ensure that that digital fit rate remains a standard for the enterprise? Or conversely, is it no longer necessary for the enterprise to track that? And when the COE goes away, because you've determined that that was a part of an improvement initiative that has achieved its goals. How do you see that? Well, on a punny level, uh, just to oversimplify, it's like horoscope, right? Uh, I don't believe in horoscope, but if it's good, I take it. If it's bad, I don't believe in it anyway. So the digital fit rate must serve also the purpose to the overlords that they feel that there's value. The people who really drive that, they see value in it, but they also come to the conclusion, let's keep it that way. That's enough. Maybe we should look at something else. But what you mentioned in terms of how to make change stick, which is, by the way, the hardest part. You know, it's always easy to come in with the stick and then come in with the carrot and then both, you know. But how to make the change really sticky is the hardest part. And, uh, you know, I'm very much interested in this concept by uh, Johnson and Scholes from the early 90s. It's called uh, the cultural web. And you have these six aspects, and I'm not going to go into all the little details, but basically, the long story short is, you know, there are six aspects of story, symbols, power structures, organization structures, control systems, and rituals, and you have to address them all. That's the unfortunate story. So if you want the simple answer, it's not one, two, three, or four out of the six topics, it's all of them. And then you have this paradigm shift. And then T can go, he becomes a myth, do you remember the times this guy, he implemented that digital fit rate based on this? And I'm long gone. The number is there. The definition, by the way, is still the same. You know, I checked a, a couple of months ago with some of my colleagues, but it's true. All of the people but one have left. And I cannot ask that one to hold on to the rituals of my past when I did daily stand-ups, for example. No, they will create new rituals. So that's why we need to address all of these aspects and as, as, uh, as stupid as it sounds, you know, but if you have many ways to measure success, if you have infinite game kind of mindset, you know, where it is not so concrete, mm-hmm. then it is easier. It's not easy, but it's easier than not. And at the moment, right. one of the strongest 
um, quotes unquote risks or everything crumbling again is the massive change Siemens organizationally wise have actually done. You know, one huge company, now three separately listed companies on our German Dow Jones, the DAX. You know, three listed companies. Yeah. So if the shareholders of Siemens Energy don't care about the digital fit rate, which was a conglomerate synergy thing, <laughs> they won't do it. But I hope that right. the people would still have value and then would continue it, even in their own flavor, in their own color, whatever that might be. Yeah. yeah, I feel like the organization's memory, though, is fairly short, even though it's a long, a long running organization. And I say that because I, I've seen a lot of a lot of companies have KPIs like a digital mm -hmm. fit rate that are specific to them. And I asked them, why are you tracking this? And the answer, the, the danger answer, you know, is because we've always done. Correct. Okay. Well, what value does it provide? Well, the answer back again is somebody some time ago thought this was important. So I guess we have to keep doing it. Mm. And really the, the question that I have is when you have, let's say, 100% turnover, we're looking at like generations of people, like you would think of generations of humans. How do you make sure that somebody can tell your story? Because if you think that, that that KPI or that approach that the COE took was relevant and may continue to be relevant, how do you continue to equip each new generation of people as you swap them mm -hmm. out with that same story or the power to change the story in small ways to update it for today, but still feel ownership of that? What do you say to them? What do you give to them? to equip them with that capability. Let's address the, the simpler part first. Simple doesn't mean easier, it's just simpler. Small changes to reinforce the foundation, I think that's important, you know, the continuous small stuff, not always the big, big revolutionary innovative stuff. Yeah? Reinforcing continuously, I think that's important. But I think the more important part, which in my own words is, why would I have the audacity to actually think I need to keep my story alive? Because when people, when people see value in whoever had that story, then it is really that mindset. So that mindset of openness, of trust, of transparency, I want that to be kept. But they don't need tea to do that. But they had certain right. examples on how tea did that. And yes, technology makes it easier in terms of, of uh, videos or whatever. You know, back in the days, it was a PDF, boring. No one reads it. <laughs> Maybe we have no videos. It makes it a little bit easier on that part. But more importantly is people will create their own stories, maybe along the same ways on how I kept my story or our shared stories alive. And that, again, openness, trust. The transparency, um, the absolute empathy, but even more important, compassion to the problems. Because I, as I mentioned, you know, nobody wants to have a really bad process. Nobody wants to have anybody else to have a bad process. Uh, and I think, I think that's 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 a beautiful thing about it, because today it was, I don't know what is it today. Today it's a generative AI, right? If I talk to people, they don't even know what I mean by convolutional neural networks. It's also AI. Oh, no, it's all LLM now. Okay, LLM, thank, thank you. In two years, it's going to be something else again, right? But 
the thing about technology serving us to make our lives better will take different different aspects. Yeah? So again, I think the personification is a very, very dangerous thing. We should do it in the beginning to be the conduit and the trash collector. Yes, please personify for that. And by the way, I get this shitstorm all the time. People think like, oh, T, you're putting yourself out there, uh, you know, uh, humble bragging a little bit too much, right? I says, no, no, no. I'm just telling the stories of other people who are, let's say, a little bit more introverted, and I'm just telling the stories on their behalf. I don't need impressions. Mm. I don't need nothing. Yeah. But the thing is, it's also my job because I have no problem in performing and putting myself, my face, my name out there. That's why I'm telling that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But now you stole my thunder because I wanted to weave in the word humble brag at some point in time in this. And now you already said, dang. <laughs> but um, having said that, I really like what you told us. Um, the one question that I have is we were always talking about that one COE. You know, mm. we have that one process that we supported. So the question that lingers in my mind is what is next? Is it a one-time thing because only one lucky organization can have the T coming in mm. and, and doing his magic? Or should an organization have X COEs maybe aligned by end-to-end -end process that they have? You know, because that's a more or less limited number. And then I come up mm. with customers who said, no, we're going to do APQC and then we bring everything in and then we manage our processes and are not able to say what managing your processes mean. So mm -hmm. what is your advice for organizations who got just get started with, with BPM in general and COZs and they have the, the good intentions to have everyone in their organization? Let me actually share with you on paper, which should have been a failed cause, which should have been a bad COE, but I think it was the greatest ever. It was centered around technology. <laughs> okay around a set of tools, but the idea was beautiful. So this guy, he looked what we have done. He did his own thing with his own team. It's beautiful. So he called it the shed on the farm. So he bought all the tools there are, all the licenses, no business case. And the only thing is that people from any cost center would come and say, hey, you got a lot of RPA bots. Can I use them? Exactly, it's for you, for mm. you to take and to use. The shed on the farm. Yeah, I see chaos coming. <laughs> and then they, and they really, yeah, and they, they took all the RAFDB and the, the, the RPAs, the low-code, no-codes, all these things he basically sourced with his team and they created this community. And then they became, as you mentioned, a COE for many, many different processes. They didn't even have on the radar. So the first problem that they actually had was they looked up the org code. Where is this person in the organization? And they mm -hmm. thought, oh, that must be purchasing. I'm from sales. I can't use that. And no, no, it's for everyone, right? <laughs> so they had to kick him then basically to the CFO in some chief of staff so that he could be really, really cross-functional, not for mm -hmm. him personally, but for the other organization because that was so radical <laughs> to them. Yeah. And... Along, I never heard any question related to business case, what's the blah, blah, blah. And the reason was why? Because it was self-financed. It was utilizing a trick I have implemented. I'm also a certified Scrum Master. I always do business cases 
which have the return in sprints within the fiscal year. Because mm -hmm. no CFO will say no to you if you actually get a return on investment maximum one year plus one day. <laughs> so yeah. that's why it's always there in, in the current budget and then it's fine. You just shift it around and you can't spend the other stuff. No, don't worry. I will anyway self-finance myself, right? So this is basically what the shed on the farm basically did. And, mm -hmm. and they had basically in the first month already years of savings so they could actually like free float uh, whichever way they wanted. But on paper, it shouldn't have existed. No concrete why, no org structure, no governance model, <laughs> no nothing. But they just over-delivered by value. And who is there to say, stop that, right? So when you ask me again, what's next? I think what's next is always in the eye of a beholder of what that organization needs. And sometimes, by the way, it might also be a, a tyrannical dictatorship because something happened externally, geographically, and there is no room for quotes and quotes agile stuff. No, mm -hmm. let's do fire and brimstone. Sometimes necessary. And I've done it, by the way, myself. When I came uh, to Vietnam during COVID, also needed to follow things. It's people's lives, right? So it really does depend on story. <laughs> well, I, I think that we this is a, a really good point for us to, to cap off the conversation. I, I love this idea of, of trying to build something that you know, maybe it shouldn't have existed, but it provided such value and it brought together people from across the business to share best practices with the, the, each other and also the whole organization. This is a, a, a legacy that, that you create, even if that legacy is very short, because the long tail of that legacy is organizational improvement. And the value you create in a single fiscal can scale up to a huge amount of value over a lifetime of organizational growth. That's amazing. And I want to turn it back to our audience as we close out the section and leave you with another question, specifically about your experiences and what you'd like to see in the future. So talk about and think about what you'd like to see from COEs that you interact with or maybe COEs that you help create or value that you can create for the organization. What would you advise your organization to build? Um, how would you see your role in it? Or at least how would you see yourself consuming content from it or working with it? And how can you and your team work together to make a better organization, a better outcome powered by centers of excellence? We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our final thoughts and the conclusion to the episode. And welcome back. Um, this is a very interesting and awesome conversation, T. So thanks for being on the show for this. But before we obviously ask you the, the most important questions of the world, let me do a little summary of what we spoke about. So we spoke about what a CEO is and, and why you should have one or shouldn't have one. And I really loved your three big lies uh, analogy for it. So I will take that in my little tool chest uh, for the next uh 
conversations that I have around it. And we spoke about the forms of a COE, you know, hub and spoke and uh, how it evolves into something different, hopefully in, in a connected network. Um, then we also spoke about obviously top-down versus bottom-up approaches of establishing those and where the middle ground is, uh, but also what are the next steps going forward? You know, your, your mission accomplished it. And then uh, also another thing that I will take over is your golden hamster dilemma. You know, it should just exist for two to three years, you know, so that you're emotionally invested in it. And uh, now, obviously, the question that's on everybody's mind is, where can I reach out to this very interesting person? And where can I obviously learn more about his Tea with Tea uh, series that he mentioned, shamelessly humble bragging, uh, as part of uh, the show? Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm sure you will put in all the links there. Absolutely. And, and really, my offer is to everyone, just ping me. I might not always respond immediately, but I will always respond. Well, that's a good uh, a good conclusion for the episode. He's not always going to respond immediately, but he will always respond to you. And feel free to hit him up. Uh, I know. I think you can get flooded with a bunch of messages from people who are like, "I don't, I don't know what to do. Help me now." Well, you know what? He's got a lot of great advice. And also, watch Tea with Tea uh, because it contains a lot of the information. Uh, sort of asynchronously you don't necessarily have to reach him immediately to get that that kind of good content but speaking of good content you can find all the links to tea with tea as well as all the notes from the show and everything you might need on whatsyourbaseline.com that's right if you like what you've heard today please go to whatsyourbaseline.com specifically for this episode slash episode 56 and you're going to find lots of great information there lots of good writing from roland and some thoughts from me on on whatsyourbaseline.com and of course you can follow us or like or share or all of the good social things that we love when you do and give feedback if you have feedback, you can email us at hello at whatsyourbaseline.com or leave some comments on LinkedIn. We love responding to those live. Well, I've had a really good time. Rolling this has been really fun. T, you've been fantastic. And I, I'm excited to find out more about all these things by watching more of Tea with T. But until I've finished that whole archive of content, I've been J.M. Erlinson. I am T. And my name is Roland Volt. And we will see all of you in the next one. <laughs>